0: Amen. Good morning, church. Y'all excited? I think we might get Pastor Corey to sing a few more songs for us. What do you think? Something a little more tempo? I've had lots of caffeine this morning, right? Actually, I'm just excited. You know, one of the wonderful things we were talking about in Sunday school this morning is the fact that Easter is coming, and we've got some wonderful reminders and yard signs and things to let your neighbors and folks know about Easter. If you'd like to take some of those home with you and put them out around your home, around your neighborhood, or places where you think others need to see where they can come and celebrate Easter, feel free to take them on your way out this afternoon. But I want to remind you about something that came up in our Sunday school class that Brother Keith was teaching, about this issue of Easter and how we celebrate it once a year, and sometimes that's the only time people come to church. But isn't it wonderful to know the real spirit of Easter is why we gather together every single Sunday. And we celebrate and we worship God Almighty and the resurrection of Jesus, our hope, our Lord, and our King, because He was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. And every morning we gather together on the week, not because we have to, but as my brother pointed out this morning, because we get the privilege of knowing That what drew us here this morning, what's drawing you to watch us online is the fact that the Holy Spirit has placed something in our heart to know that we are part of something so much bigger than just this world and what it has to offer. God draws his people unto himself and he makes us desire to gather together so that we can enjoy his worship and we fellowship with one another. And folks, that's the genesis of why we're here today is to worship him and to know that we're here because he has called us because he has given us a special relationship through Christ Jesus to truly be the children of God. So what a wonderful realization as we celebrate Easter, and we want to welcome you this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, if you're a visitor here with us, we are working our way through the Corinthian letters. We're looking at what was going on in the church of Corinth that Paul wrote these letters to, and how can we apply that to understand what similarities and what things can we apply according to the text, to our own life. And that brings us to our lesson today as we're looking at this issue of sin within the church and what was happening in chapter 5 of the, 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 the sin, to put it simply, that was going on and what was being allowed and what was being boasted about. And today we'll transition into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way there to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to examine verses 1 through 11, and I want to share with you a little bit of what was going on in the life of the Corinthian church at the time. And I want to do so kind of in way of illustration. Our first song that we sang talked about the law. And it talked about how the law in the Old Testament, as Paul would share with us in the New, that the law, what it did for us was it revealed sin in our life and our need for a Savior, our need for, in Israel's time, atonement for sin. That's what Yom Kippur was. That's the sacrificial system that we find in the the, the Leviticus, the books of the law of the Old Testament. And then moving forward into that, we see that today we still have sin in the church, and we still need a Savior and a sacrifice to be the propitiation for our sins, which is Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, Paul is going to talk about this issue of law and how the church is supposed to be something a little different than the world. Matter of fact, extremely different from the rest of the world. I want to share with you an image and this image is of the, the law uh, of Congress or the Library of Congress, the law of the library, the Library of Law, I think is how they pronounce it. A uh, bunch of big words, but it's, it's where we have the greatest collection of legal documents and facts and historical documents and precedences that have been set by courts and by laws and, and different things. The library was founded in the early 1800s, and it, made, it, be, it is the oldest federal cultural institution in our nation. On August 24th of 1814, British troops burned the Capitol building where the library was housed and destroyed the library's core of some 3,000 volumes. On January 30th of 1815, Congress approved the purchase of Thomas Jefferson's personal library of 6,487 books for the amount of $23,950. Oh, Tommy boy was rolling in it, right? They reestablished this library. The Library of Congress is the largest library in the world with more than 170 million items that can be viewed on statistics, on law, and other things. But here's the interesting fact. Each working day, the library receives some 15,000 items and adds more than 10,000 items to its collection every single day. Now, you'd have to be a Philadelphia lawyer to go in there today and find a volume or to find a book that you need that might help you with whatever legal issues is going on, and it'd probably take you a long time to find it. They actually have staff that are paid that work there in the Library of Congress to help lobbyists, attorneys, judges, and people that are looking for case precedents will go and pull those resources for you upon your request. It can often be difficult to find out what the law actually says today. You ever notice that? In our own time, how you need a lawyer because the laws have become so complicated that we can't even understand it. Here's what it looks like inside when you go in there. The volumes are stacked so much so that they have to be in these special containers that you you turn that wheel and it will open up that section on a trolley, if you will, so that you can go in and find what you're looking for. Now, how does that relate to what Paul is writing to the church? Here's what I hope you will understand: the word of God is so simple that we can turn to it, open it, and without a whole lot of shenanigans, we can read what the Word says and apply it to our life and find great value without having to have 10 million copies of different things to tell us right from wrong. Scripture is pretty clear for us. So I want you to turn your attention. I want to share with you in our message today three things that we can look at. When I, I titled the sermon, Living by the Letter of the Law. Well, as you can see by the Library of Congress, there's a whole lot of law to read if we were following the world standards. But thankfully, we're going to read 11 verses of what God's standard is for the conduct of the church and some biblical insights that we can take, three of them specifically. So let's turn to the text and let's pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, and then we'll go back and examine each one of them separately. Picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, Does he dare go to the law before unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, Father, we thank you for the reading of your word and its truth and proclamation. Father, we thank you that you have made the word of God so simple that a babe can wade into it and not drown, but so deep and intriguing that the greatest theologian can never reach the bottom. So, Father, we pray now for your Holy Spirit to convict us, to help us to understand the conduct and living by the letter of the law that you've given us in your word, to truly be a people set apart, called out, those who have followed Christ that are your people, Father, may our witness to the world be reflected in how we conduct ourselves amongst our brothers and sisters in this place that you've given us as we are assembled now as your church, as your bride, awaiting for your return. Father, we thank you for this time now. May the Holy Spirit bring conviction where needed, where comfort where we're challenged, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what an interesting thing that Paul starts off talking about this issue Now, the old adage, there is no perfect church, couldn't be more true in the sense of the Corinthian church. And I would argue there's a whole lot of Corinthian churches going on all over the world. And I'd argue if you look close enough, there's a little bit of Corinth in almost every church if we allow it to continue to live out the example that the Corinthian church was being admonished by Paul for. What is this issue of lawsuits? Number one, I want to share with you the difference between two worlds. There's absolutely a difference between the world of the church and the world of the world. Now, what's that mean, the world of the world? The secular folks, the ones who are not saved, who are not regenerate, who have not been born again, that are living a life in this only thing that they know, which is the world. They don't have a spiritual mind or a spiritual understanding. Paul made that clear in 2 Corinthians 14 when he told us it's impossible for them to understand the things of God. It's impossible for them to align their lifestyles with what the biblical truth teaches us. Because they're still in the natural man. They can't understand spiritual things. So the first perspective I hope we understand is that when we look at the world and what's going on there, we can't expect the world to live like we do. But boy, doesn't the world look at the church and see a whole lot of reflection of itself in the church? Because too often we are not living by the biblical standards. I want to share with you what was going on in the life. Go back to verse 1 for a minute and let's examine more closely what was happening in the life of Corinth. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? You see, in part A here, I'd argue that it's not if a grievance happens, but when a grievance happens, how the church deals with it. How we as a body of believers who are separate and called to be apart from the world, not of the world, but while we are in it, to conduct ourselves in such a way that gives the illumination of Jesus to the society. Here what was happening in Corinth was they were... Dealing with one another the same way the world would deal with each other. And Paul's saying that can't be. When you have a grievance, you should not, first thing you should do is go to the court. first thing you should do is amongst the church, the brothers, the body of Christ, seek the very thing that Jesus came for. If I can sum one word up of what Jesus came for, for all of us on this Calvary that Jesus died on, would be reconciliation. That very word, reconciliation, is what Jesus did for us when he gave his life on Calvary so that we could once again be restored in our relationship with God. And this reconciliation is what Paul expects the church to be doing amongst themselves because Jesus modeled reconciliation for us. The church will have tribulation and we will have differences of opinions. I once heard it said this way, opinions are like belly buttons. We all have them and most have linen in them, right? Ooh. But the reality, we don't like other people's belly buttons as much as we like our own, or not. But we all have differences of opinions. But the reality is, as the church, sometimes we have to set aside our own opinion, our own preference, our own personal desire for the greater good of what was going on. And here, the Corinthian church was absolutely not doing that. It was every man for himself, much like in the Old Testament where the scriptures record for us, for they did what was right in their own eyes, each man. Well, if it's good for you, it's good for you, it doesn't mean it's good for me. You heard, we heard that a lot going on lately in our world, isn't it? What's good for you may be good for you. Relative truth, what is relative truth? Well, if it doesn't step on your toes, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's not true for you, but it may be true for me. Scripture tells us otherwise. Number one, when grievances come, God has given us a clear understanding of how we're to handle that. You can make a margin, a little note in your margin there in your Bible of Matthew chapter 18. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus himself lays out for us a process for biblical restoration, reconciliation, mediation, negotiation for the church when there is a conflict that goes on. Now, keep in mind, if you're watching here, we don't have any of these problems at this church, right? But in case you do, this is a, a, a teaching on how we would, in theory, resolve them when they come about. And as we all know, we're human because these issues affect every church. It's how we deal with them. There's a reason Jesus gave us in Matthew 18, the understanding of how the process, if you will, long before we get to the point of excommunication, where we remove the brother or sister from amongst our fellowship, there's a series of steps that's supposed to take place. Number one, Jesus says if you have a grievance against a brother, go to him and share that with him. And if he hears you, then you've won over a brother and you're reconciled to one another. Now notice it doesn't say pick up the Pine Bluff grapevine, the grapevine of gossip and start calling your brothers or your sisters and say, did you hear what that preacher did? Right? And sharing it that way. No, the scripture says if you have a problem, go straight to the preacher. If you have a problem with your Sunday school teacher, go straight to your Sunday school teacher in love, prayed up, hoping for reconciliation when you come together, not, well, I'm going to tell him how he was wrong. He's going to see it my way too often. Isn't that how we approach conflict in our own life? Well, he's dead wrong, and I want him to know. And we go into that reconciliation time with all the facts of why I'm right hoping to win you over to my side, almost as if we're before the jury already giving our closing arguments, hoping to have one of those great Matlock moments, right? Where the jury sees it finally, aha. And we leave out of that meeting knowing, he knows I was right. But we have no restoration, no fellowship, no brotherhood, no reconciliation in our relationships with one another. But boy, we got our point across, didn't we? Boy, isn't that what the world does? The church is not supposed to be that way, folks. Because guess what? The world is watching. The difference between two worlds is on display how we conduct ourselves. But it's not when a grievance happens, or if, but when it happens. And it's not what, but how the grievances are handled. It's not about the grievance per se, but isn't it the testimony of a church about how they dealt with the conflict? How they handled, in a loving way, the ability to restore a brother or a sister in the fellowship? how they sought that reconciliation through love and through gentleness and through patience instead of just throwing them out or dissolving the relationship. We have a membership process at our church, and part of that process is to learn about our church and to understand who we are and what we believe and our core principles, and, but also to understand our mission, our purpose, our vision, our values. And at the end of all that, generally myself or one of our pastors will counsel with that person, and people come from all different places, some that had no church family, some that had no salvation in Christ, that have accepted Jesus, and we baptized them into our, our fellowship, and, and they join the church. But I always, I always ask them when they're coming from a different church, why are you coming here? Why are you leaving your church? And more often than not, they begin to share with me some difference of opinion, because we are Baptists, Right? We, we have some differences about us, and we, we like to have it our way, and the autonomy of the believer and the priesthood of the believer often tells the person, well, I can do what I want, and if I don't like the way you're doing it, I'll go somewhere that'll do it my way. We take the Burger King approach to church. I'll have it my way. But often in that membership meeting, I'll ask that person or that couple, what caused you to leave your church? And they'll begin to share with me some things, and often they share with me conflict that is left unresolved meaning they've never applied Matthew 18 to the process, they've never told the deacon or the pastor or the pastor's wife or the Sunday school teacher's wife or whatever caused the conflict of why they're leaving, they've never addressed the issue with those who can solve the problem. They've never given that church an opportunity to be restored. And I lay out Matthew 18 for them and I I tell them, I'll be praying for you, but I'd really like for you to go back and talk with your pastor about why you're leaving his church. And often, sometimes they'll tell me, well, pastor, I tried it. I went Matthew 18, and, and I did this, and I did that, and they followed the biblical steps. And I'm like, okay, well, you've done all you've done. If you're satisfied that you have done that, and you've explained it well, I believe you've at least given an honest effort, we'll welcome you into fellowship here. Sometimes I'll call that pastor. Hey, brother, Imagine that. Imagine, imagine pastors calling other pastors of local churches helping resolve conflict from church members so that they can keep ministering to their sheep. Imagine the fellowship when churches aren't competing against one another, but we're edifying and uplifting the body of Christ, the church universal, together, and we're strengthening the witness for Jesus in our communities, not stealing or swapping sheep. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we applied that approach? See, it's not what but how the grievances are handled in our churches that make the difference. Corinth was a train wreck when it came to handling grievances. That's why Paul has given this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe God is giving us this instruction on how do we handle these grievances. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now let me speak to that word incompetent for a moment. There is a challenge often in churches today and in our society today. We have a very high rate of biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. What do I mean by that? We have gone in a time and in a nation where we have this thing I call cultural Christianity in our communities. Where we go to church and that's about the depth of your spiritual relationship. Rather God has called us, Jesus has called us to make disciples, followers of Christ, meaning people of the book long before they were called Christians, people of the way, that's what they were doing. They were following the way, the truth, and the life. His name was Jesus. And today in our culture, it's often cliche is to say, I'm Christian because your grandmother was saved, because your grandfather was saved, but yet you've never professed Jesus' as Lord and Savior, you've never been baptized by the waters of immersion, you've never experienced the fruit of salvation in your life, and you wonder, I don't really feel like going to church. But oh yeah, me and, me and God, we're, we're good. We have an understanding. I assure you, He has an understanding. I think those folks in that category do not have the proper understanding. We'll talk about that a little bit as we get through this. Thirdly, it's not the outcome but the manner in which they are settled that matters the most. Sometimes we can force our way and we can force right on somebody. We can excommunicate somebody that's being difficult from the church. But man, doesn't that send ripples through the wave? You ever see a boat go through a no-wake zone, just ripping it up full throttle, hoping there was a wildlife agent there to give them a ticket as your brand-new $60,000 boat is smashing into the pylons because of its wake? See, that's what happens when we don't follow biblical principles when we're trying to resolve conflict, is the wake we leave behind us causes damage to the boats on the shore that we're doing nothing, but they're getting rocked by those wakes. And when we don't follow God's principles, the same thing happens. The outcome is not always the final result. It's how we settle those conflicts and we restore fellowship. There is absolutely a difference between two worlds. Paul here is not telling us that courts are wrong. The issue is not legal systems, but rather the conduct and witness of Christ's church. Too often we tarnish the witness of Christ by trying to do things the world's way when we should be first following Christ's way. In my studies on church facilities and building and all these other things, I remember one of my expert panel architect guys was giving me some advice he was a Christian brother, and he was giving me some Christian perspective on, on when, how to properly contract with contractors when you're using them to build church facilities. And one of the comments he made to me was, first off the bat, he said, don't hire Christian contractors. I'm thinking to myself, why won't you hire Christian brothers? He said, because it's simple. You can't sue them, but you can sue a heathen, right? It was meant to be funny. But he, he was truthful. He's like, if you hire a Christian to do the work, then when you have an issue or a challenge, you're going to have to do the hard work of trying to reconcile that without taking them to court. Because you tarnish the witness of Christ when you do. So it was a little tongue-in-cheek. He was being a little silly, but it was also an element of truth. Because so many Christian contractors often don't fulfill what they say they're going to do. And churches sometimes change the rules in midstream and want something that wasn't promised in the beginning. So there's all kinds of reasons why that happens. But what a witness for Christ. Courts have a purpose. Paul would write to the church in Rome and to the church in Corinth to respect our legal system, to respect our governments. And the courts were established to help us with that. But the witness of the church should absolutely be different between the world that we're trying to witness to. They see who we are by what we do. But secondly, look with me in verse four, 4 through 8. Look what Paul writes here. He says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. Now here we're not talking about blood relatives. This adelphi, this word brother that's being used here, is the relationship, the familial relationship that we now have for sisters and brothers that are in Christ Jesus. You know God has no grandchildren, by the way? He only has children. You can't be born into the kingdom of God unless you've been born through the Holy Spirit and through Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ is what Paul's talking about. Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Verse 6, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So point number two, let me share with you the witness before two worlds. There's internal and external witnesses that are going on here. Number one, I want to give you three, three things. Number one, we should absolutely be the church of appeals, not the court of appeals. That's where we go to when we lose a lawsuit, and we say, well, our, our, our attorney files an appeal, and it goes to a higher court, goes to the state Supreme Court, and then when you, you lose that one, you appeal before the Supreme Court of the land, and, and it goes on and on. But here's what the church should be. Absolutely the church of appeals. Paul is telling us it should matter about what people think of us on the outside. What others think matters, right? That's true. We, we believe that. Whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. But what other people think of you matters. It influences their decisions. It influences what they choose to do. It influences whether they want to be a part of whatever you've got going on. That includes the church. What people think of the church and its witness often determines whether they decide to invest or give or participate of their time with that church. So what others think matters, but secondly, it should matter more to the church. What the church thinks should matter more to other people. Today, we live in a society where I see a trend of people not really caring if their relationship with the church is in turmoil. I don't care. I'll go to a different one. I'll go to that church over there. Or I'll just stay here. Well, you know what? I don't even got to go to church anymore. I'll just watch it online. Folks, it should hurt a believer when he's out of fellowship with his church. It should hurt a believer when his church thinks something's not right in his or her life and there's a challenge going on. There should be a pain, almost like a, an ache. You ever lose a girlfriend in high school or a boyfriend and, and you had this ache that you thought was going to kill you and it would never go away? Right? That's kind of what it should feel like when there's, there's a disruption in our relationship. You ever had it with your wife and know you really stepped on it, right? And you know for a couple of days your heart's broken because you realize those words should have never came out of your mouth and you can never take them back. It hurts to know i got to carry that now. Folks, that's how it should feel when we're in fracture with our church, when we have a division in our church, when there's something not right in our church. We should, we should ache the same way. What the church thinks Matters more than what the world thinks. But here's the kicker. Last of all, what Christ thinks matters most. What Christ thinks about our conduct and how we represent Him, folks, we are the bride of Christ. Now, think about that. I don't know any man in this room that on his wedding day with his bride, if she was being assaulted by a guest at the wedding, who would not lose their sanctification for a few moments and lay some hands on that person, right? I'll just speak for myself. That's what I would do, okay? God bless me, forgive me, I'm still a preacher. I'm not a saint. However, imagine how Jesus views his church when someone's laying their hands on his bride and someone from amongst the wedding party is not conducting themselves appropriate at the wedding. What Christ matters and what he thinks about his church matters more than all of our opinions as the church and all of the world's opinions of the church. And the best way to make sure we know what Christ thinks is to read his word, to understand his ways, to apply his precepts. So the church of appeals is our conduct, but secondly, the church of competence. Notice what Paul pulls out here in the scripture and and highlights is one of their major difficulties. This goes back to my cultural Christianity issue of discipleship. We have more conflict in churches today and a lack of understanding because we have a poor level of discipleship in many churches. Paul is talking about this issue of competence and wise leaders of character and honor. He says here in verses 5 through 6, number one, they lack understanding. They didn't understand how to apply the scriptures or what to do in certain contexts. So what do we do when we don't understand something? Here's our nature. We go and do it the way we know to do it. Even though that way has failed us over and over again, we get stumped every now and then, and we just do it the same way. I was doing something in my workshop this week, and I was programming something on my CNC machine. And I'd hit the button and thought I fixed it all, checked all the settings and let it run, and it started cutting it wrong again the same way. I'm thinking, hmm. So I go back, and I do the same thing over like five times. It's just what I know to do. And every time, it amazes me that it keeps doing it wrong every time. And then I realized, because I'm doing it wrong every time, and I'm only doing what I know to do, so obviously this exceeds my understanding. I need to find some help to help me resolve this issue. Don't we do that in our own church life too? When we don't understand Scripture, we can form opinions, and we can go about solving issues or thinking we're solving them by doing it the way we only know to do it, and not seeking any help. Church, Paul is calling the church here, They're understanding, their competence as an issue They lack spiritual growth. I call it the vitamin B deficiency, Bible intake. They don't understand the Word of God. They've never been students of the Word of God. They've never rigorously studied. Folks, there is a big difference between reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God. Right? I love all the Bible apps and the daily quotes that come through my, my, my text messages, and I get the little scripture reminders of the day from different studies, and all of that's good saturation. Right, It's good. Some of it's bound to stick in me. Those are all good things. But you know where I get some of my greatest benefit? is when I sit and I open a book of the Bible, and I begin in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And I work through John and I stop and I just ingest it a little bit at a time. I write, I take a notepad, and I I write my notes in it, and I underline things that I need to go back and study. What's that word really mean? Where did it come from? What's its etymology? What did it mean in the Greek? How would it have been understood in the day by its context? You know, there's words in our Bibles today that that have a different meaning today for us than the original Greek languages. As a matter of fact, how many of y'all know where the word Calvary came from? Calvary is actually a translation and etymology of the word Calvaria from the Latin. It means the skull. In Aramaic, the word skull is Golgotha. You've heard of Golgotha before, haven't you? In the Greek, however, the word skull is cronium, where we get cranium from, our big skull. So I got three different words that all mean the same thing, pointing to the cross of Calvary. We sing about Calvary. Matter of fact, in our song, we sang about Calvary. Calvaria, the skull, Golgotha the hill where Jesus was crucified. It's interesting, when we study the Word of God, we dig a little deeper than just the surface level, and we start to grow, and all of a sudden we're no longer as vitamin B deficient, and we can start understanding and having the competence that Paul is talking about here. Lastly, a lack of biblical application. I've also ran into those that can quote, to and fro, as the wind may blow, the scripture from Genesis to maps. They know it all. But what's lacking is they're not applying it in their daily life. They know what it says. They're quick to offer the rebuttal in the defense of their actions. Judge not, preacher, lest thou shalt be judged. Yeah, well, Paul makes it also clear. I'm called to be a fruit inspector. Jesus said that you'll know them by their fruit. Well, how do you know the fruit unless you taste the fruit? Well, you've got to inspect it, right? We're going to see in chapter 6 later on that he tells us the church is absolutely to govern, and to judge those insiders that are in the church. A lack of competence, Paul cites. But thirdly, the church has this issue that Paul is talking about here, and I call it diminished returns. You ever invest in something that eventually stops giving you a return on your investment? Maybe you have a tool that no longer is working as well as it should, a backpack blower that's no longer strong enough to get the dirt off the driveway, so you finally get rid of it and go buy you another one, a diminished return. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing for you. It's not providing the value that you need, so you trade it out and you get a new tool. Many of y'all can say thank you later. Tell your wives it's diminished, so the pastor said you need to get me new tools, right? And ladies, it works the same way for your kitchen. When your mixer's not working, tell your husband, it's diminished, I need a new one right? New oven, double oven, convection, timer, all that stuff. Y'all can thank me later, right? But the church has diminished returns because no one ever truly wins a lawsuit. Think about it. No one ever truly wins a lawsuit. Shannon, my wife, was in a car accident years ago. that caused some damage to her neck. She was hit from behind. And you can imagine the amount of attorneys that were calling our, our house, the, the ambulance chasers, that were wanting us to to sign up. And we had some significant issues some medical things. And just a long story short, we finally started working with one attorney who was going to help us recover the damage from our vehicle and other things. But we ended up dissolving it. We said, you know what, we're done with this. Here's what the attorney complained about. He said, well, there's not really enough proof that you're really hurt from this accident. And therefore, since I'm not really guaranteed that we're going to win a lawsuit that's going to have enough money for me in it, we're pretty much going to advise you you probably should just drop the lawsuit now think about that for a minute who really wins in a lawsuit maybe the attorney if there's enough in it for him but really nobody wins in a lawsuit not even when you get your little bit of money because a witness has been diminished often more often than not the church is diminished by the returns. notice what he states in verses seven through eight Number one, they're defeated by the conflict that's already amongst the church. He says to have lawsuits, in verse 7, at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Now notice he doesn't say to have conflict with one another is the defeat. That's not the defeat. It's not wrong that we have conflict from time to time about something. Often the root of conflict is pride. My way over your way. You know that's the number one root of most marriage issues is pride. That I want something she's not giving me. And if she'll give it, I'll be happy with her and give her what she wants. And the same thing for the wife. Well, he's not giving me what I want, so I'm not going to give him what he wants. And we fight against keeping the very thing that each of us need to function healthy over our pride. The same issue happens in conflict. We don't want to give the other person what they need because I'm not getting what I need. But they're defeated already. Secondly, he tells us they're defeated by pride. And lastly, they're defrauded by sin. Why we not rather be defrauded, Paul says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? And Paul is literally telling us this, and I believe the Holy Spirit is telling it, and we're going to see two verses of Scripture that back it up. It is better for a Christian to suffer loss and maintain his witness, take the high ground, than it is to win the lawsuit and his witness be diminished. Here's what the writer of Proverbs, good old wisdom of Solomon, says in Proverbs twenty twenty two. 22 Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. See, the Lord fights for his righteous and his church. The writer of Hebrews, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. See, it's okay if we're harmed when we forgive. You know, choosing to forgive is always the part that's most difficult for some people but it does the greatest benefit to the person who chooses to forgive. Whether it helps the person that's wronged you is irrelevant. When we forgive, it's more for your benefit than the person who wronged you. They may get a clean bill of health. They may have a clear conscience after you forgive them. They may no longer be burdened for what they did towards you, knowing that you have forgiven them. But you know, when we refuse to forgive, it only hurts us more. God tells us to forgive. That way it releases that pressure valve in our own life. Why not suffer wrong, Paul says, but remain our witness, the internal witness of the church compared to the external witness of the world. But thirdly, look with me in verses 9 through 11 as we look at the judgment of the world to come. Verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Ouch. That's done, right? Or you can say, praise the Lord, He has saved me. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. A couple things that Paul brings out here. What does it mean to be justified? To be or become judicially vindicated as having compiled with the requirements of law. Number one, Paul gives us a verdict that's been declared. This verdict that's been declared in verse 9 here, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, there's a separation from the wheat and the tares that will happen one day. And the wheat in the parables symbolize the unrighteous, those who have not placed their trust and faith in Christ, those who are living a licentious lifestyle, those who are living in sin, who have not asked and sought forgiveness, who remain lost in their sin, as opposed from the wheat, which are the valuable portions of the harvest, those who have placed their trust and faith in Christ Jesus who repent of their sin as it occurs, who walk in fellowship with God Almighty through His Son, through the Holy Spirit, understanding who it is we come here even to worship today in spirit and truth. You see, Paul is given a verdict by the ultimate judge, but he's also rendered a sentence. Notice how in verses 9 to 2nd part through verse 10, he goes on to list out as if they need to know. Now, Paul doesn't grab just a random list of things that were going on around Asia Minor. And put him here in his treatise, or his case against the Corinthian court, the Corinthian church. Paul is identifying the very behaviors that he knows is amongst the Corinthians. How do we know that? Because look in verse 11, "And such were some of you." You see, he's citing evidence of what he knows about those people and their lifestyle. Do not be deceived, neither are the sexually immoral, are some of you sexually immoral. You don't have to say anything. Matter of fact, don't say anything, please. But well, you know. You know because the Holy Spirit gave you a little twinge when that word was read. And you're like, ooh, that was me before. Praise be to God. I'm a different man now, right? Idolaters. Adulterers. Men who practice homosexuality. Thieves. The greedy. The drunkard. The reviler. The swindler. Notice he concludes verse 10. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, but Jesus, right? And verse 11 kicks off it, "But some, but as were some of you, and such were some of you, you were washed. See, he, renders this, he, sent, he gave a sentence that was rendered. but then he notices in verse 11 this acquittal. Now we all know what acquittal is, don't we? That means you're found not guilty of the crime in which you were accused of, to be acquitted of it, meaning you get to walk free from the courthouse. No longer in shackles, no longer in pretrial confinement. Your sin has been, or your crime has been forgiven. Here's what Paul says about these same people in the Corinthian church about this acquittal. Notice he says first that they were washed, washed by Christ. Isaiah 43:25 says the following, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Ain't that good news? As far as the east is from the west, my sins have been cast away, never to be drawn up again, never to be brought back into the court, never to have to stand trial again for all of those idolatries, immoralities, adulterers, all those homosexual issues, all the fevery, all the greedy, all the drunkenness, all the reviling, all the swindling, all of those things that were part of our life, expunged. Can't even find a record on it. Because why? We've been acquitted by the blood of Jesus on Calvary. Secondly, though, he says we've been sanctified in Christ. What is this sanctification? Jesus took on our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul would say this, For our sake he made him, that's God making Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we have in Christ, something we couldn't do for ourselves that Jesus did for you and I. You ever see someone on trial? up on the court pleading in their own defense. They choose not to take the Fifth Amendment, and they testify against their own defense, and they're just pleading. I'm not guilty, I promise. That doesn't work, does it? we got to wait until the jury renders its verdict, and the judge reads and gives the sentence until that person is able to go free. Their testimony might have a little bit to do with it, but really it's what the jury thinks that acquits them. See, in Christ Jesus, we've been sanctified because we're no longer what we once were. We don't have to give a defense for our own self because Jesus now stands as the advocate. The Holy Spirit stands as the paraclete, the comforter, the one who declares us sanctified in Christ Jesus. But lastly, this third part here of wash, sanctified, lastly, we're justified through Christ. And I think the greatest understanding of this justification that that I have come across in Romans chapter 3 is Paul is laying out this, this issue. Now, the Roman church had much of the same issues that the Corinthian church had. They were in Rome, right? They were dealing with all kinds of challenges and learning how to balance civic Roman duty and law and life with that of the teachings of Christ. And where the two were colliding, Paul is trying to teach them as well. And Here's what he says about the issue of justification. He says, but now the righteous of God have been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Folks, that's what we have in Christ absolute, complete acquittal. Let me share with you an image. Of what it looks like, if you've never had the privilege of sitting on jury duty or standing there in the court and having to give a defense or being on one side or the other, we have a thing in American law and we call it double jeopardy. Now, double jeopardy is one of those jurisprudence areas of study where a lawyer would understand what double jeopardy means. It means that if I've been tried for a particular offense, and after the evidence has been presented, after the defense rests its case, after all that is done and the jury comes back and they find me not guilty, did you know by our own standards for double jeopardy, I cannot be charged again for the same crime? That's what double jeopardy is. And we have a constitutional protection against that, that we can't be retried again at a later date. Imagine what that's like, getting acquitted for offense you didn't, didn't commit, and then two or three years ago, two, three years later, you're, you're trying to plan your vacation to Hawaii or wherever you want to go, and you're worried, well, we'd do that, baby, but we better keep the money saved up because we might have to stand trial again if they decide to, to charge me again for it. Imagine what life would be like if that's how our legal system worked when you were guilty of a crime. Folks, you know that's the same way many believers live their life, thinking that they're going to be held accountable again for their sin after they've been forgiven by Jesus? Carrying that burden that my sin is going to somehow follow me, even though I've repented of it. Now, there's true repentance. Now, what's true repentance? Here's the best form of true repentance. Don't do the same sin again. That's how you know whether you've really repented or not, that you stop doing that sin, right? But imagine we don't have to live waiting to be retried and judged again in Christ Jesus. We are truly acquitted with no fear of double jeopardy. No worrying about whether a gavel is going to slap the table again and call us guilty. And here's why. Here's a beautiful image. Here's the gavel that really mattered. The hammer that drove the three nails into Jesus. The crown of thorns that our King of King and Lord of Lord wore on his head. Imagine the blood dripping from his face, spilling onto the ground at Golgotha at Calvary, so that we indeed could be acquitted of all sin. For he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might be, that we might be his righteousness. What a wonderful thing Christ has done for you and I. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him more than just a cultural icon in the South? Have you placed your trust and faith in Jesus? Because if you haven't, there is no acquittal for you. But if you have, you are a child of God. And God has great things in store for you. And he wants you to experience that. Jesus said, I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. Would you trust Christ today? Give him all of you. He wants every bit. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Before we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to give you an opportunity for response. If you're here, if you're watching at home, there will be contact information how you can reach out to us to find out. But if you're here today and you need to accept Christ Jesus, if you would like to accept Christ Jesus, if you feel God calling you through the Holy Spirit, tugging on your heart that you need salvation, that you are not saved and you want to be, if that's you, I want you to slip your hand up in the air. No one's going to look around except you. If it's looking, right? Wonderful. We're all saved. May we be the church that God's called us to be. May our witness for Christ be bright. May we indeed be a city on a hill whose lamp cannot be hidden. So, Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the urging and nudging of the Holy Spirit, the conviction. Father, first of our relationship that is needed with you, and Father, thank, secondly, for the relationship we have to walk differently than those outside the world, to be a witness in every aspect of our life for you, to bring you the glory. And Father, we thank you for the, for the offer of salvation, or that you continue to seek and call men and women, young and old, into a relationship through your Son, Christ Jesus. So Father, we thank you for this precious time. We thank you for the word. Father, help us as a church to learn from what we see in Corinth and in Rome and Ephesus and Colossae, these other places that you've given us to understand how to be your church, your bride, unstained and unsoiled by the world. Father, we thank you for this time now as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we do what you've commanded us, to do this in remembrance of me. So Father, we pray now for Your blessing upon this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to share with you now as we participate, I want to first ask you, if you did not receive your elements uh, to participate in the Lord's Supper, uh, please lift your hand up in the air. One of our ushers will be coming around to give that to you. If you did receive them, you're good. Just hang on to it. I do want to orient you real quick. There's two parts to this. And if you miss it, you'll be like me and you'll get grape juice all over your shirt, right? The very top is 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 a little... Clear tab, and that reveals the bread, the wafer, the unleavened wafer that's underneath the top. The second time, you'll pull off the grape juice, uh, and that'll help you prevent it from being spilled. But we do this to help with the COVID issues and sanitation and whatnot. We've kind of changed our process, but nonetheless, it is the Lord's Supper. Amen. So I want to share with you as we read from, again, the, the Corinthian letters, as Paul is, again, giving instruction to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, He gives instructions for how are we to take the Lord's Supper, because again, it wasn't being done properly in the church of Corinth. But I want to share with you how our church participates in the Lord's Supper. We believe in what's called open communion. We participate in open communion, meaning that if you're of a different denominational background, that doesn't matter to us as much as the fact that you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He's not really yours. He's mine too. So he's not really your personal Savior, but he's all of our Savior's. And if you've been baptized in the waters of baptism, then we accept you as the universal church and we'll break bread with you in fellowship with you. Some churches practice closed communion, meaning only their members participate in the Lord's Supper. And there's wisdom in both ways. But here we choose to use this as a testimony and a witness for Christ and fellowship with other believers outside of our membership. So if you're here today and you've placed your trust and faith in Christ Jesus, you've been baptized by some form of immersion, preferably the Baptist way. Immersion, that's what it means to be dunked, but that's a whole other story, right? But if you'd like to participate today, we welcome that with you. Uh, So that said, we will take the Lord's Supper today. Now here's what Paul tells us to do is as he was witnessing how it was not being done well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, he starts off by telling the church that there's a time that we need to examine ourselves. Now why is that? Because they were casually partaking in the Lord's Supper as if it was just another meal. There was nothing special or significant about it. But Jesus told them clearly on the night that he was betrayed, as he took the bread and as he took the cup of wine and passed it, and he said, do this as often as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. And Paul saw that there was something not right. So he goes on and he tells them the following, and this is where we are today. And I'm going to offer this to everyone here before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Reading from verse 28 of the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul says examine your heart. So we're going to take just a few minutes and Miss Dana is going to play for us. If you have something on your heart, if there's a sin in your life that you know you're still participating in, this would be the time to ask God to forgive you of that. Otherwise, you'd be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We have altars down here. If you can pray, you can pray right where you're at. Say, Lord, examine my heart. Search me. Find if there's any wicked way within me. Help me to serve you more. Forgive me of my sin. Take a few moments and examine your own heart before we proceed with the Lord's Supper. Paul would go on and share to the Corinthian church and for us today, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for me. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, pray with me, if you will. So Father, we thank you for the body that was broken. Father, we thank you for the remittance of sin. and Father, we thank you for the salvation that comes by your act on Calvary's cross. By your faithfulness and your love, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, we thank you for that. We do this in remembrance of you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Partake. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so father we thank you again as we participate in the lord's supper father we thank you that you have made us worthy through your sacrifice and your blood on calvary's cross as children of god set apart called out once to live righteous and holy to be a light to this world father we thank you for your love and your mercy and we ask it in jesus name amen partake Paul concludes by saying, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise be to God. Amen.